Order, order. Hello, I'm Hanea Ahu presenting the Week in Parliament with Tom Fruin. Returning to their debating chamber at two on Tuesday, MPs found the government waiting to put them under urgency to debate two bills worked up during the week's adjournment as the government's initial response to the Kaikara earthquake. Wasting no time, the go-to earthquake response minister in John Key's cabinet rose to present both bills straight after question time. The Honourable Jerry Brownlee. Mr Speaker, I move that urgency be accorded the introduction, first reading and referral to select committee of the Haranui Kaikoura Earthquakes Emergency Relief Bill and the introduction and passing through all stages of the Civil Defence Emergency Management Amendment Act 2016 Amendment Bill. Mr Brownie then explained the purpose of the first bill. Mr Speaker, the two bills uh, can be described first uh, as a bill that will make legal some of the things that particularly the rural community have had to do Uh, either to get themselves out of their farm properties or perhaps to put uh, water back on for their stock uh, or to uh, re-erect sheds or any other of the things that are necessary uh, to keep a farming operation uh, going. Uh, Or generally with the welfare of the animals concerned uh, to the fore. Mr Brownie then turned to the second bill. Mr Speaker, the uh, Civil Defence Emergency Management Amendment Act 2016 was passed just four days before this earthquake event. It had in it a commencement date of the 14th of May 2017 for uh, what I call transitional powers and authorities. What this bill does is amend the Act further uh, to bring that date forward, but it doesn't put the same obligation on councils that don't need it at this point. Mr Brownie then launched the first reading of Bill Number 1, which was sent straight to the Local Government and Environment Committee with instructions to report it back by Thursday. The House then, sitting under urgency, completed all stages of Bill Number 2, basically amending its start date before the adjournment at 10 on Tuesday night. Next morning, the Local Government and Environment Committee, chaired by National List MP Scott Simpson, met at 9am, set to go through to 6pm to work through the Hiranui Kaikara Earthquakes Emergency Relief Bill with officials and various experts. Working into the night, they reported the bill back on time at 2 on Thursday, only to be given another load of homework for the weekend. Another bill for Mr Brownlee, the Hiranui Kaikara Earthquakes Recovery Bill, which was given a first reading with the agreement of the House, no need for urgency, and sent off to Mr Simpson's committee, this time with instructions that it be back by Tuesday. Mr Speaker, the earthquakes of the 14th of November uh, have left a very indelible mark on communities throughout the upper part of the South Island and in parts of Wellington. And it's uh, impossible to fully understand what might be needed to recover from those events. This week, with unanimous support across the House, we've passed legislation that will significantly help in that earthquake recovery. But that alone is not enough. We know that with such a big earthquake and the subsequent aftershocks, uh, the widespread destruction that comes with that will mean that it could be a considerable time uh, before all of the damage is understood and more importantly, the consequences of that damage is understood in relation to communities recovering. Mr Speaker, um, like the Canterbury earthquakes, the true uh, scale of it will take some time to determine. 
While acknowledging the uncertainty created by earthquakes, Mr Brownlee donned his civil defence ministerial hat to have himself asked this patsy question by national backbencher Chris Bishop. Uh, how has the 14 November Kaikoura earthquake affected the probability of future earthquakes in New Zealand? Responding with a definite maybe, Mr Brownlee said GNS Science, the government authority on earthquakes, had observed slow slips between tectonic plates occurring at the same time on both the east and west parts of the lower North Island, and GNS had also said that an aftershock of the 7.8 magnitude of the quake on November the 14th was unlikely but possible. As members of the House will understand, it's not scientifically possible to predict earthquakes. However, this ongoing seismic activity is a reminder to us all that we live in a seismically active country and we should always be prepared for a major earthquake. Supplementary, Mr Speaker. Supplementary question, Chris Bishop. Oh, thank you, Mr Speaker. This is a cracker. What steps can New Zealanders take to be better prepared for a disaster? The Honourable Jerry Brownlee. Well, Mr Speaker, it is a good question, and it's not a laughing matter in these circumstances. While Jerry Brownlee worked through the rubble of uncertainty in the aftermath of the Kaikara earthquake, the Speaker, David Carter, announced plans for a new building certain to withstand any earthquake, no matter how big. A ministerial office block to be constructed behind Parliament House on the car park. It was immediately dubbed the Parliamentary Palace by the New Zealand First Party, whose Deputy Leader, Ron Mark, had a question about it for the Prime Minister, John Key, on Tuesday. The House comes to questions for oral answer. Question number one. In the name of Ron Mark. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister and asks Does he stand by all his statements? And if so, how? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Yes, and with fear and trepidation, I'm about to be mauled by the member. (laughs) (laughs) Supplementary question, Ron Mark. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. To the Prime Minister, how does he stand by the statement on the new parliamentary palace that, quote, it just makes sense long-term for us to own these premises, end of quote, when he does not have the same view on the ownership of state houses or, for that matter, state power companies. The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, yes, and I can assure the House that if that member got anywhere near ever being a minister, he'd be the first one round measuring up the carpets trying to check that it was a big enough office for his ego. <laughs> Ron Mark also applied for an urgent debate, getting this decision from the Speaker, David Carter, at the end of question time. I have received a letter from Ron Mark seeking to debate Understanding Order 389, the announcement made by the Speaker yesterday to construct a new building for Parliament. The urgent debate is a way of holding the Government accountable for an action for which it is responsible. The Speaker is not part of the Government and is not able to take part in the debate as a Minister can. I do note that in September 1997, the Speaker granted a similar application for an urgent debate. However, on that occasion, it was in respect of an announcement made by the Government and not by the Speaker. The application is therefore declined. Although the Speaker controls Parliament's grounds and has some powers similar to a Minister's, he can't be questioned in the House, although that didn't deter the New Zealand First Party's Dennis O'Rourke the next day. Mr Speaker, in relation to your decision yesterday to decline an urgent debate under Standing Order 389, in relation to your recent announcement of a new parliamentary building, can you confirm for members 
that you have received formal cabinet approval to fund it. Which earned Mr O'Rourke an old-fashioned bums rush. That's not a matter for the House, uh, for the order of the House at all. If the member wants to come and see me later on that matter, I'm happy to discuss it. I ruled on the urgent debate yesterday and that matter is now closed. Not as far as New Zealand First was concerned, their deputy leader was back with this request on Thursday. Point of order. Point of order, Ron Mark. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Sir, I wish to raise an important constitutional point of order and I do ask that you not necessarily give, give a view now, but you deliberate on this over the weekend and advise us of your view. Order. Order. The next sitting order. The, sele- uh, the point of order will be heard in silence. Thank you, sir. This relates to the application of the Public Finance Act 1989, where, and I quote, it says, the appropriation minister in relation to an appropriation made to an office of parliament means the speaker, end of quote. This appears to contradict your view that you are not a member of the government when you are in respect of vote parliamentary services and especially for the costs involved in a new parliamentary building. I'll give it some very considerable thought over the weekend and come back to the member. New Zealand First also stood alone in opposition to the three treaty settlement bills, passed an extra time on Wednesday morning, as Hanea Ahu reports. The three bills up for their third reading were the Ngaruahine Claims Settlement Bill, Antiatiawa Claims Settlement Bill and the Taranaki Iwi Claims Settlement Bill. All were in the name of Treaty Settlements Minister Christopher Finlayson who led off the third reading debate on the Ngaruahine Bill. Over the next few hours, we will see Ngaruahine join their whanaunga Tiatiawa and Taranaki Iwi in celebrating the third readings of their settlement bills, bills that seek to address some of the gravest moments in our country's history and which will hopefully path a way for a positive future for the iwi of Taranaki. To the many people of Ngāruahine here in the gallery, uh, I and other members of Parliament have eagerly awaited this important moment and we feel privileged to be here. You and your tipuna have fought for over 170 years to reach this point, so once again I extend my warmest greetings to you all. Treaty Negotiations Minister Christopher Finlayson launching the third reading debate on the Ngāruahine Claims Settlement Bill, which passed by 108 votes of all parties except New Zealand First, which also voted against Te Atiawa Claims Settlement Bill and the Taranaki Iwi Claims Settlement Bill. The final result announced by Deputy Speaker Chester Borrows. Members, the ayes are 108 and the noes are 12. The motion is agreed to. Taranaki Iwi Claims Settlement Bill, third reading. That report from Manea Ahu on the three bills passed on Wednesday morning while also passed later that day was a member's bill providing compensation for live organ donors sponsored by National List MP Chris Bishop. There are two main purposes to this bill. The first is to more fairly compensate altruistic New Zealanders who, through the goodness of their hearts, choose to donate an organ to a friend, a loved one or even a stranger. It needs to be said clearly for the House, sir. Live organ donors 
are national heroes. The current compensation regime amounts to the equivalent of the sickness benefit, and it inadequately recognises and supports the hardship that these individuals face when they make the choice to give up an organ in order to save a life. The second purpose of the bill, sir, is to reduce the financial barriers to becoming a live organ donor. We know that one significant barrier to people becoming a live organ donor is the financial hardship that donors suffer through lost wages and other associated costs of recovery. National List MP Chris Bishop, who was showered with praise from fellow backbenchers around the chamber after his compensation for live organ donors bill attracted cross-party support for its third and final reading. The next two members' bills had the opposite effect, dividing the House right down the middle. Labour leader Andrew Little's Our Work, Our Future bill and the Residential Tenancies, Safe and Secure Rentals Amendment bill sponsored by the Greens co-leader Materia Toure were defeated 61 to 59. National, United Future and Act on one side, Labour, the Greens, New Zealand First and the Maori Party on the other. Mr Little, though, had high hopes for his bill, which would have required the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Enterprise to give increased priority to local enterprise and employment in its procurement policies. Mr Speaker, this is a landmark occasion. It's the first time that uh, I can find in the history of this Parliament that a leader of the opposition has not only had two bills drawn from the members' bill process, but that both bills are before the House at the same time. And this House... This House has been very generous in, so far, by majority, supporting the Healthy Homes Guarantee Bill, and I'm sure that the same spirit of cooperation and collaboration will apply in relation to this bill as well. In the event of that not occurring, Mr Little's finance spokesman, Grant Robertson, had obviously been working on a Plan B. It is time in New Zealand that we backed our people. We backed our companies and we put decent work for New Zealanders at the top of our agenda. That's what the next Labour government will do. This kind of legislation will pass when we come into government next year. Across the chamber, National List MP Brett Hudson joined his caucus colleagues in consigning Mr Little's bill to the parliamentary dustbin. Mr Speaker, this is an atrocious bill. It should be thrown out. I do not commend it to the House. Bowen, Andrew, Bowen, what a fool! Order, 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 order now. And there'll be another Members' Day on Wednesday, as confirmed by the Leader of the House, Jerry Brownlee, in his Thursday business statement. Uh, Mr Speaker, when the House resumes on Tuesday the 6th of December, the Government will look to complete the remaining stages of the Hiranui Kaikoura Earthquake Recovery Bill, the second reading of Te Awa uh, Tapu Wanganui River Claim Settlement Bill, and the third reading of the Rangatane or Manawatu Claim Settlement Bill, and a number of other bills on the order paper. Wednesday, the 7th of December, will be a Members' Day. The Leader of the House, Jerry Brownlee, with that preview of the week ahead. Back now, though, to last week, and Thursday's Question Time featured yet another round in the never-ending battle between Health Minister Jonathan Coleman and his Labour predecessor, Annette King. What was the total percentage growth in hip and knee joint elective discharges between 2002-03 and 2008-09? And what was the same figure for 2009-10 to 2015-16? Mr Speaker. The Honourable Dr Jonathan Coleman. 91 and 24. But remember, Labour wasn't in government for nearly all of 2008-2009 when National came in and set a new target for lifting surgeries. The figures that are really relevant is that while Labor did an extra 10,000 electives per year over their time, this government is doing an extra 53,000 operations per year. 
That's over five times the annual increase achieved by the previous government. Supplementary question, Mr Speaker. A supplementary question, the Honourable... In light of that answer, why is he trying to hide the fact that there was a 91% increase in hip and knee joint surgery undertaken between 2002 and 2008, and that was a Labor budget, not a national budget, and only a 24% increase in the seven years between 2009 and 2016 under this government, even though the population increased and it aged. The no, Honourable Dr Jonathan Speaker, I'm not trying to hide it at all, but I think it's interesting that Mrs King has chosen one of two areas where she managed to deliver any sort of increase. So listen to this. General surgery under Mrs King, down. Heart surgery under Mrs King, down. Ear, nose and throat under Mrs King, down. Gynaecological operations under Mrs King, down. Paediatric surgery, plastic and burns, urology and vascular surgery under Mrs King, all fewer operations. Supplementary question, the Honourable Annie King. When he claims more elective surgery than ever, why doesn't he tell the people waiting for hip and knee operations in Hutt Valley, Mid-Central, Northland, South Canterbury, Tairawhiti, Waikato and Whanganui DHBs that they did fewer operations in 2015-16 than in 2014-15? The Honourable Jonathan Coleman. Speaker, quite frankly, overall there's been a 30% lift in hip and knee operations under this government, so that's the fact of it. But I'd also tell them that when Mrs King left office, there were 33,000 people waiting over six months for uh, appointments or treatment. Today, there's pretty much zero waiting over six months. Well, supplementary question, Mr Speaker. Well, supplementary question, the Honourable Annette King. Who said that? Order. Order. I don't, I don't need the assistance then? from the government whip. <laughs> Supplementary question, the Honourable well, Annette King. Why has there been a big increase in acute hip and knee operations, in other words, people needing urgent treatment that can't wait, that has almost doubled under this government? And are doctors correct when they said in the Doctor magazine and they called him Doctor Who? Well, actually, an increase in acute surgery actually shows that people are getting their operations sooner. Basically, they get the injury and then they have the operation. And it's a far cry from when Mrs King was Minister, when 33,000 people were waiting for more than six months. And then, of course, Pete Hodson had to just cull them off the list altogether. Today, there are zero waiting more than six months because they're actually getting their operations, unlike when that person was the Minister. I thought we were forward-looking. Order. Can I have the supplementary question? Yeah, supplementary, Mr Supplementary Speaker. question, the Honourable... What Minister. action is he taking on hearing comments from Waikato DHB that, quote, staff across the organisation were under pressure to deliver targets and yet the District Health Board's own report showed it was financially under-resourced, end quote? The Honourable Dr Um, Jonathan Coleman. Well, the first uh, report we got on that was an anonymous phone call to my office, so the immediate action we took was to Google the number, which turned out to be the Wellington office of the Labour Party. Point of order, Mr Speaker. Point of order. Point of order, Mr Speaker. Order. Order. Point of order, Mr Speaker. Point of order. Yes, Mr Speaker, it is... Against standing orders for any member to stand in this House and 
say that sort of thing without proving it. I want, order, I order, want the proof order, of that. No. That is a total no, lie. No, order, a total order. lie. The member asked a question about at what action the minister took. The minister took order. The minister order. The minister gave an answer to the action he took. If in any way the member now feels she's been misrepresented, then the place for that is to refer to Standing Order 359. Order, Mr Speaker. I will well, hear on the point of order, but if it's in regard no, to... No, no, I just, just wanted to... No, what I wanted to say is, in your summary of the member's answer, you said the action he took. What he said was... It wasn't the action. He said he received information, for, anonymous information, order. Now, now, and it came from the Labour Party, order. and I want that order. tabled. Labour's Deputy Leader, Annette King, ending another round in her never-ending knockout fight with her national successor in the health portfolio, Jonathan Coleman. Wednesday's general debate, meanwhile, saw New Zealand First's Tracy Martin take up the issue raised by her Deputy Leader, Ron Mark, about the plan to construct a new office block to house Cabinet Ministers. Mr Speaker, if we ever needed a real-life example that the National Party is confused and out of touch, then the announcement of the Parliamentary Palace Part 2 is it. If we ever needed a real-life example that you can't believe everything that falls out of the mouth of John Key, then yesterday's question time and his answers to, the, to Ron Mark are the example that should be held up. Let's be clear. Yesterday, in question time, the Prime Minister suggested that when, when Ron Mark queried about the ownership of Bowen House and how it came to be sold out of the public hands... The Prime Minister suggested that it was done by the National Government from the 96 to 99 period, of which the Right Honourable Winston Peters was part. Now, let's just make sure we record history correctly, shall we? Yeah. Now, and in some way, I don't blame Mr Key, because Mr Key wasn't around. He was too busy making money off the share market, trading on the Kiwi dollar at the time. So he had his head down, and he might not have known what the facts actually are. But let's be clear, in 1997, listen up National Party backbenchers because this is real history. This is the history according to the Hansard, not according to your speechwriters. The Right Honourable Winston Peters blocked an attempt to sell or to build a parliamentary palace. As the Treasurer and due to the Asian economic crisis, he rejected a new building because taxpayers already owned Bowen House. The very fact that he did that is why the National Party caucus under or part of it under the leadership of Jenny Shipley threw over Jim Bolger, broke their word in a 1996 coalition agreement with New Zealand First not to sell any more public assets, but because they were and they were dedicated to making sure that they followed this ideology, they destroyed their own caucus to actually create this ability to sell. So in 1998, so here we are, Mr Prime Minister, have a listen, Winston Peters was no longer part of that national-led government. There had been a coup, Jim Bolger was gone, Jenny Shipley was in place, and in 1998, the following buildings were sold. Bowen House, Bowen State Building, Charles Ferguson Building, St Paul Square, Defence House, Freiburg Building, State Services Commission Building, Vogel Building, William Clayton Building. How much do you think the taxpayer got? How much do you think the taxpayer got for the package? 
for the package. $59.7 million. $59.7 million. In 2013, how much was Bowen House sold for by the private owners of that building? $62 million alone, close to $63 million. Now, the Prime Minister seems to have had some sort of epiphany now. He's, um, he's talking about, it says here, the Prime Minister is being quoted as saying, it just makes sense long term for us to own these premises. Oh my goodness, it's like Groundhog Day. You could take the Right Honourable Winston Peters' speeches from back then in 97, saying that it makes no sense whatsoever to sell a building that is owned by the New Zealand taxpayer that has a guaranteed tenant, a guaranteed tenant, often to private hands. But no, 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 Jenny Shipley and the national government, and they don't appear to have learnt very much, no, had no problem with it. The Right Honourable Winston Peters and New Zealand First was wrong, didn't understand business, didn't understand the economy. Off they go and sold all those buildings. Now, and what's even weirder is, um, just if we tie that into the Kiwi Bank adverts at the moment, who's seen the new Kiwi Bank adverts at the moment? We've got some New Zealanders' faces projected up on buildings saying, hey, are you banking with Kiwi Bank? Because we're not a foreign-owned bank and our profits don't go offshore. Oh, my giddy aunt. Oh, my giddy aunt. It's like straight out of the New Zealand First Manifesto. Who was it who stood up when the, when the, with the privatisation of the banks, of, New, of the Bank of New Zealand and other banks into offshore hands and said, now all the profits are going to go offshore? And you know who's the appointed chair of Kiwi Bank? Jim Bolger. Crikey dick. The guy that said we shouldn't own our own bank now is part of the campaign to try and get New Zealanders to recognise that when they bank with a foreign-owned bank, their profits go offshore. Tracy Martin was followed in the general debate by the education spokeswoman for the Green Party. Catherine Delahunty. Tēnā koe, Mr Speaker. Tēnā koe, I also want to speak about a dark secret in this um, in this country, but it's a, it's a sadder one in many ways for our kids. So I, I do want to challenge the government on seclusion rooms. Banning them is not enough. Seclusion rooms are a symptom of a broken system whereby some of the most marginalised children and the most stressed teachers, aides and teachers are struggling to deal with some complex issues. And so government needs to do a whole lot more than just put out an SOP, which we think we may support, banning this practice. We need to fix a broken system and support schools across the country because these children are hurt and have been hurt. So for a minute, I'd like to think about this perspective of these kids themselves. Children who experience um, a range of um, learning differences and, and disabilities often do not find school easy and often have triggers that can result in behaviours that other people find difficult or confusing. Now, in order to make sure that these kids are taken care of, there is no initial teacher training on this. There's maybe a couple of hours. There is no professional development that is mandatory to teachers. They have to opt in to understand how to cope with the situation. And what we have seen with the seclusion rooms is that with 17 schools, is that they are not coping and are, are using this strategy because they don't know what else to do. They don't know. And without resources and training and a culture of inclusion, this will continue to happen. Even if seclusion rooms are banned, these children will continue to be excluded from their rights in terms of safety and opportunity 
unless government seriously invests in the need for a programme of education around inclusion. Our society remains disabling and exclusive. So I'm not blaming the government alone. We're all part of it. But it's the job of the government to lead more than a piecemeal ban of an individual strategy which we all find frightening and the children are traumatised by who've experienced it. We have to do a comprehensive change. That is why I initiated the inquiry, Mr Speaker, which we've just reported back on. And that inquiry found a broken system. It found that there is no more money. The government's not prepared to put more money in. And it's not prepared to enshrine children's rights in the law. So families who've experienced things like seclusion rooms or like only having one hour of school a day and their child is seen as a behavioural problem and they are asked to remove that child, which is exclusion as opposed to seclusion, but amounts to the same thing, that needs to be addressed properly. And that has not been addressed properly. And our select committee continues to hear on all kinds of legislation around education, these families telling us story after story and piecemeal um, um, responses will not work. I am not attacking individual schools. I know there are individual schools that are going through hard times of this as well as families that are going through hell. But actually, it's not their fault. We have not, in the history of this country, and particularly in the last um, the term of this government, we have not invested sufficiently in building a culture of inclusion. Mainstreaming of children has become main dumping and that has led to some strategies that are less than perfect by people who have less than optimum training and support. There are schools doing a fantastic job who know exactly how to avoid triggering meltdowns for children with high needs such as autism. There are many ways in which we can avoid seclusion or exclusion. Greens Education Spokeswoman Catherine Delahanty. I'm Hanea Ahu and this programme was brought to you with funding from Parliament.